The great thing about gathering in the name of the Lord is the Lord, and he gathers with us. And we've been sharing things just tremendously about Jesus, but I've had hallmarked on me like a big stamp that the Lord put on me that every single day, every single thing that we're doing can be viewed as a choice, or am I going to go with Jesus, or am I going to go another way? And any other way that's not Jesus is by definition evil. It may not look like evil, but it's by definition evil. But all through the day, we're confronted with things where Jesus presents us a way and says, here I am, and there's the other way, and we can do it. Um, There are little things in life, like, um, you know, people cutting in front of us in line, things like this. Um, I am not going to tell you this long story, because Helen would shoot me for doing it, but let me just say this. This week, I spent over three hours on the telephone with Comcast. We had a testimony there. So anybody that has done that, now now I have a nephew that works for Comcast, so I'm not trying to just slight them. But um, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say, I may be walking in new lanes of patience that I didn't know were there to be walked in. Do you know what I'm saying? And so, um, but God does these things. He takes us places and uh, we feel like we're being stretched. I know Gary sitting right here, his whole life in the last two months feels like you're being stretched. When John walked through the cancer that's in his neck, you go, well, I'm not dead sure what's happening here, but it feels like everything about me is being stretched. I thought I was doing pretty good on my faith, and it seems now that God is asking for three times as much faith as I have. And that's such an interesting concept, because you see, it's Jesus, the Bible says, who authors and finishes our faith in Hebrews 12, 2. He authors it and finishes it. And yet we talk about it as, I haven't got enough faith. Well, you see, the guy who authors the faith is the guy who's asking the faith of you. So he's giving you what you need. And it was like the horse story. You have what you need. It's like the prophecy. I've given you what you need. You need to get up and walk through the troop. You need to get up and walk in that place. And not just keep questioning and saying, I wish I had the ability. You have the ability. God never puts us in a place that we can't handle. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, For no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your strength. But with the temptation will provide a means of escape that you may be able to endure it. The, that scripture says God is faithful, and he will make sure you have the strength to endure So if God is being faithful and giving us the strength to endure, to walk through a trial or a difficult time or an unsure decision, when Helen and I went on to Medicare, that speaks to us a little bit there on the age point of view, all of a sudden we got this extra bill that was charging us for Medicare. Well, I'd kind of budgeted the world and all of a sudden this extra bill showed up and I'm still working, so the extra bill was sizable and they want us to pay it once a month. Well, I hadn't factored that in. Every time we hit something in life that we have not factored in, God has already factored it in. God is not surprised. We are routinely surprised. God is not surprised. He knows. He doesn't get caught off guard. And when he's sustaining and being faithful, there will always be a voice going, Bob, how can you get through this? 
using everything you've used in the past, you cannot make it. That's because God is giving you something you haven't had in the past. God is taking you to a place you haven't been, to do things you haven't thought of. Remember the scripture Jesus said that those who followed after him would do the things he did and even greater things. Now that's the truth. And we need to be walking in that place. Well, I don't know how to get there. It's not up to you to know how to get there. It's up to us to know who to put our hands, our hands into the hand of Jesus. He's the one that knows how to direct steps. We have never known how to direct steps. It's never happened. Just the way I have met some of you in this room, I could never have orchestrated. God just did it. He just figured out a way, and he does that routinely. So today, I want to talk about Jesus came not to condemn, but to rescue. Jesus came not to condemn, but to rescue. And I want to open up with John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So verse 17 there, I always, I always like John three sixteen and 17. I always like to add that one. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. Because the typical idea that people have is Jesus made a way and he came to say, if you don't go my way, you're condemned. Jesus came to say, come and be rescued. And I like the word rescued because it conveys the point that we were stuck and needed rescued. Sometimes when we hear the word saved, we go, oh yeah, that's been used so many times, it just kind of bounces off a little bit. But rescued to me kind of goes a little deeper. And I regularly need rescuing. I, I, this week, Helen will testify, I've got at least, I don't know how many, honey, at least half a dozen times I needed rescuing. Not just rescuing from sin, definitely needed that, but I needed rescuing from situations. I needed a rescuer. Jesus came and he came to rescue us. Now, the reason I'm saying this is that there is a spirit in the world that is so contrary to rescue, it mounts up in condemnation. And we do it one to another. Um, I just can't really lay this out thick enough, except if you just watch television or you listen to conversations... Conversations are routinely on television and in other conversations where people talk about other people, they put them in a category, and then they condemn the category and the people. So they talk about other people, they place them in a category, and then they condemn the category and the other people. So this is done routinely in politics, okay? So you're a something-something. Okay, well, those people believe this, so if you're in that, you're as bad as they are, and you're all bad, and you're bad. And this is also true, but it's definitely true, and it's a terrible thing, that it's true in religion. If the enemy wants to break down the church, he wants the church to fight amongst themselves. He definitely wants that. 
So he wants to make sure you get a tag put on you somehow so somebody can define your category or bucket and then talk about how bad your bucket is. And people do this all the time. If you believe in something, oh, you're a believer in a gracious God. Well, you're one of the confused people because God's not gracious because my great aunt died when she was 42 and that's not gracious. And so God's not gracious. We are so willing to tell God what he is and is not. Uh, I'm always amazed by people that stand up and say, there cannot be a good God because there's evil in the world. And if there was a good God, he never would have allowed evil. And therefore, there is not a good God, and I don't have any accountability to a good God. Well, there are a couple of things I want to say about that. Number one, God is not in the business of one creation. The Scripture is absolutely clear. There are two creations, and that the first creation is very short, and the last creation is eternal and never ends. So if Fran was taking one of her kids to the doctor... And there was particularly sick, so pay attention to this, Don, because this is what kids, they do. They pay, take their they, kids to the doctor. They were sick, and they was going to need a shot. So the nurse comes out and does her trick, and usually good nurses can, you know, do good things. But nonetheless, there's a needle that goes in with the shot. Well, Fran's little boy might look up at her and go, Mom, you knew they were going to jab a needle in my arm, and you took me right in that building, and let that woman put that needle in my arm. <laughs> and, Mom, I thought you loved me. Do you see? And Fran would try to say in as many words as you can, I know it was unpleasant, but it was for a short time and a little thing, and it's to make you well for a long time. But right when the needle is in there, your mind is focused on what? Not the long time, but the needle. That hurt. That stung. It's like a little bee sting. And if you grow up, and we've all grown up, bee stings are interesting things. Don't want to get too deep here. But when you're stung by a yellow jacket, it hurts. It goes away. It goes away. It hurts, though, for a while, but then it goes away. And Fran would be right to for, take care of her child. And for a, a short time, there's a difficulty to bring a great thing about. Well, God, not making robots, but making people he wanted to love and fellowship with, made us not robots, but free will, people in his image, that we can choose to be with him or not be with him. And the fact that God opened the gate that there be free will and a choice means there has to be a choice not to choose God. If there's a choice not to choose God, that is the definition of evil. That is what Satan did. He looked at God and chose himself and said, I will ascend to the throne. So because God wants to have fellowship with us eternally, he made a way that we could choose him or we could choose not him. Now, did he give us adequate warning about what would happen if we didn't choose him? Oh, yeah. You haven't read the book of Deuteronomy lately. You need to dive into Deuteronomy, especially around chapter 18. God says, these things will happen to you if you follow me. You will be blessed in every way. You will be blessed in your going out. You will be blessed in your coming in. Though your enemy comes against you, he will flee in seven directions. Everything you plant will prosper. 
Every work you do will prosper. And God laid out in detail, and I mean detail, you've got to read through 14 or 15 verses just to get all the blessings. But then he finishes up the chapter by saying, but if you go against me, you're going to be cursed. And you're going to be cursed this way. And he takes about 30 verses on the curses. Okay, he goes through and he says, what you do is not going to succeed. When you try, it's going to fail. You are not going to reap any of the blessings that I'm talking about. So God painted it as well as it could be painted. He told him in advance, I'm trying to make it so there is no choice. You can see to come to me so that I can bless you. And every feast of the year that the Lord established, he opened up and said the purpose of the feast was so that we can come together and rejoice. That was the purpose. Not that you can come together and say, you're crummy and I'm God. No. He said the purpose of the feast is so we can rejoice together. God intended from the beginning to make every way possible for us to choose him, to make it as black and white as it could be. I mean, imagine if I walked into your house and said you have two choices. I have a $500,000 budget here, and you can renovate your house any way you want, and you can put any kind of kitchen you want in. I recommend starting with the kitchen, by the way. And you can do it any way you want to. Or I have a friend over here with a bulldozer, and he's going to come through your house as it exists, and you'll get what's left over. There's no choice. Do you see? There's no, this is ridiculous. There's no choice. This is what God did. He said, I'm, I'm going to make it so when you come to me, you're going to receive blessings you haven't even thought of. And if you don't come to me, all your life is just going to be destruction. And he laid it out as clear as he could. But what did people do? They went, well, that's interesting, but I think I'll do it my way. That's the wrong choice. But God lays himself out in the choice, and he takes it personally. And the Bible says in the Old Testament that God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his people. Now, I love Helen. And I'm jealous for Helen. And I don't like Helen to talk about another man more than about 30 seconds. Okay? Okay, she, she, she comes away from one of these meetings and goes, Well, so-and-so, man, he's a handsome-looking guy. He's really walked through the years well-preserved, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Well, that's as much as she can say. She can't go on and say he has a nice personality and he has this because I'm a jealous husband. You got it? Now, I believe you should be a jealous husband. That's my opinion. That's not in the scripture. But I think you should be a jealous husband. I think you should think about your wife and not want your wife thinking about other people. But God is jealous for us multiple fold over that jealousy. He wants us dearly. He cares for us. And he's done every single thing he can do to draw us unto himself, including coming in the form of a man and sacrificing himself for the debt we couldn't pay so we have a free ride right to fellowship with him. Well, this is incredible news. It's not just kind of okay news. It isn't that the Falcons got the number two choice in the draft and maybe there'll be somebody that can help their team. That's a little bit of good news. That's nothing. This is talking about our eternal home. So in the second creation, what does the Bible say in Revelation? In the second creation, there is no evil. There is no crying. There is no pain. Now listen to this one. There's no exhaustion. Have you ever been exhausted? There's no exhaustion. There's no tiredness. Forever. Eternally. And that God is setting us up 
to know him as we are known by him. And, John, and Jesus said in John 17, 3, to know the Father and the Son is eternal life. To know the Father and the Son is eternal life. We know the Father and the Son a little bit. We are going to know him even as we are known, the Scripture says. And that is eternal life. Well, so we have a short period of time that we have this creation. In this period of time, there has to be evil because we have to have a choice to choose God. God makes every way he can that we'll choose him. He lays everything out so we'll choose him. But there is a consequence and accountability to what we do in our life. And after this creation, Satan and all his angels will be in the lake of fire. There is going to be a creation that is perfect. And it's beyond what we can ask or think, the scripture says. The eye is not seen and the ear is not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the very thing that God has prepared for them that love him. You know, when Jesus gave power to the 70 and they went out and they had authority over demons and to heal people, they came back and they were excited saying even the demons had to flee. But do you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, if you're excited, you need to be excited about this. Your names are written in the book of life. He said, you want to be happy? You should be happy about that. Because you see, demons are going to be in the lake of fire. All this is transient. All this is transient. You know, um, when we have grandkids over, what do we call those building things? Uh, we have these blocks and you attach tubes to them and you can kind of build a fort. And you lay a sheet over it and you can call it a house or a castle or depends on what you're doing. It can be the Paw Patrol headquarters or whatever. There's a lot of good cartoons out there. You can even play, uh, what's the... I forget, what's when you activate, honey? Which one of those? Wildcrats. Yeah, it can be a Wildcrats thing. You can do all sorts of things. But you're putting a sheet over a little toy structure. But do you know what happens to a three-year-old when that thing falls apart? It's like the world crashed in. And you want to tell them, look, we put it together in 20 minutes. We can do this again. It's just a sheet over some toys. Because the transient nature of that housing to us, we would say, this is no big deal. Certainly not worth crying about. A three-year-old has no perception of that, and they just continue to cry. Okay, But that's what Jesus is telling us. You're in a temporary residence. Your home is not the Jerusalem which is below, but your home is the Jerusalem which is above. And yet, all of our life feeds to us. We've got to pay attention to the Jerusalem that's below. So when he says he came to rescue us, he came to rescue us in every sense. And when we talk about condemning people, the spirit of the world is to condemn. And this is one of the things Jesus fought so hard with the Pharisees about. Because they would, he says to them, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. You make sure you tithe every little one thing like this. But when it comes to justice and mercy and love, you are nowhere to be found. But when it comes to, did we get the last little bit of money out of you? You are present in force. Have you got me? You strain at a gnat and swallow the camel. So I have about 420 people under me at CDC, and one of the things I learned from Scripture was, 
You can't strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. You have got to major on the major and minor on the minor. You cannot minor on the major and you cannot major on the minor. Now think about that just a little bit. But if somebody, if one of you were to walk up to me here and say, well, Jim, that's a nice shirt. I think, didn't you wear that shirt three times before? And I think I saw you in Leslie's wedding wearing that shirt 45 years ago. Pretty durable shirt, that shirt. Do you see? And you said, well, is that somebody you want to go back and talk to later? No, because they major on the minor. Do you see? And when you have somebody that comes up and majors on the minor, I, uh, I constantly tell embarrassing things about me and Helen, and I sometimes get in trouble for it. But there was one time in our house history where we had paneling in a bunch of places that was ancient, and we were thinking about maneuvering the paneling and moving up to a drywall and painting it and having what you would call a regular house. But we had 1960s paneling, you know. Some of you all know what that is. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. But nonetheless, we needed to change paneling to something more modern so our house would look decent. And we got some swatches of some things, like if we got drywall, what would we do a color? And we put some things up on the paneling. We had about five swatches there. Now, we got some stuff well before we had the money to do it. We were just exploring. But people would come into our house, and they would go, Oh, you're redecorating. I like that color. And I just want to tell you that if you don't have money to redecorate, I have an incredibly inexpensive solution. Just go get five swatches and stick them on the wall. You don't have to redecorate. You just have to put up the swatches. Because everyone who comes in will know you're redecorating and will give you their opinion and think about how wonderful you're doing making your house more livable. We left those swatches up there, I think, 18 months. We didn't have the money to do anything, but we're thinking about it. Well, you'd go, oh, gads, that's not really, you know, you're just kind of putting on a surface thing. But it bothers you when someone comes up and goes, you know, this is a nice kitchen. I think they were making kitchens like this in the 40s. Uh, it would be good, though, if you, you know, brought in three-pronged plugs and some things like that into your kitchen. You hate people like that. What you like is the people who come in and go, is there any way I can help? Let's invite that person over. Who were they? Well, that's Suzanne. Suzanne comes over and goes, is there any way I can help? That's the kind of person she is. That's the kind of person you want to be with because they major on the major. They don't major on the minor, and they don't minor on the major. It turns out the major is Jesus, and any person who minors on Jesus is just in trouble. If you are walking with the Lord and you take two months and minor on Jesus, you're going to be in trouble. You can't do that. He is the major. So the scripture is saying, don't sit around here and strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, but look at Jesus. Jesus completely changes you. Now, when Jesus was confronted with the woman caught in adultery in John 8, 8 through 11, and the woman came, we all know the story, and the scribes and Pharisees, they all wanted to stone the woman, and they said to Jesus, what do you have to say? He bent down, rode in the dirt, and he stood up, and he said, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And the Bible says that they left, starting from the eldest going to the youngest, presumably the one with the most knowledge to the one with the least knowledge. And then he turned to the woman and said, where are your accusers? And he said, they're gone. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So Jesus didn't come to condemn, and the woman was guilty. The Bible is explicit. She was caught in the act. Not two people accused her. She was caught in the act. 
she was guilty. Jesus came and dealt with the guilty, and instead of condemning the guilty, he rescued the guilty. Now, when we talk about things, the conversations that people have genuinely go to the place, are they guilty? And if they're guilty, everybody jumps on and condemns. The big discussion is, are they guilty? And so there goes such and such and such and such and such happened, and you go, well, did they really do that? So if I'm in, I've got Robert over here, and if I turn to Robert and say, well, you know, Robert really had a tremendous outing when he was working with the Godmobile, and a guy came up to him and said, I really appreciate what you're doing. I want to write you a personal check for $50,000 just to back you up in what you're doing. And Robert looked at that and was very thankful, took the personal check, put it in, and then tax time came around. And Robert goes, well, nobody really knows about this check. It's not on a W-2. It's not on a 1099. It's not on anything. And uh, if I report this as income, I'm going to order, I'm going to owe a bunch of taxes. What if I don't report this as income and just keep, Robert doesn't do things like this, I'm just grabbing it. You did that. Is that right? I'm picking the story. But do you see? And you're sitting there kind of going back and forth. Is this something I could do or not do? You know? And then all of a sudden the IRS comes in and you know the IRS will take a look at your bank account. And if you have deposits that aren't regular deposits, they will ask you where did that money come from. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you've ever been audited, they will want your bank account statements. And so Robert would be caught in that case. And so then there'd be a little poster saying that, you know, Robert was caught and he had lied and cheated and that would be passed around and everything. But he was caught. The evidence was really strong. And everybody would go, oh, the evidence is really strong. And then without thinking, they would condemn Robert. Do you see? He was guilty, so we condemn. So our conversation is, can we just get the person to be guilty? And if the person is guilty, we automatically condemn. Jesus' conversation is, you were all guilty, all of you. For there, everybody has sinned. There is none innocent, no, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he said, you are all guilty, and I came to rescue you all. So instead of going from guilty to immediate condemnation, which is the spirit of the world, the spirit of the world is to go from guilt to immediate condemnation. The spirit of Jesus is to go from guilt to immediate rescue. Do you see? Now that's the spirit that he wants in us. I, I told this story maybe even last time, but it's such a good story, I'm going to tell it again really quickly. There is a guy on YouTube I really like named Andres Bissoni, B-I-S-O-N-N-I. And he is really good in the Lord. He has a wonderful spirit in the Lord and ministers all sorts of places. And God uses him very powerfully. And if you look him up, Andres Bissoni, B-I-S-O-N-N-I, I guarantee you, you will love his YouTube clips. Because he ministers in all these cities and people get slain in the spirit and healed. And he just shares the gospel in the wonderful way. But he was called and asked, would he minister in the prison in Huntsville, Alabama, which is a maximum security prison? And he called up his friend and said, yeah, we'll be willing to do that and just go there. And, and it's very interesting, Don, because on the way he said, um, wait a second, I'm headed into a maximum security prison. Is this the smartest thing to be doing here? Which you might think that's maybe not the safest place in the world. People who are already condemned to stay there forever and you're walking in the midst of them. But they had a very he went on, he had a very nice chapel and he was ministering and they told him he had 40 minutes and that was it. Then they had to be back in their cells. 
And so he was ministering, and at the end, he had shared the gospel and said, anybody that wants to accept the Lord, if you would just step down and come out either in the aisle or step down here and get down on your knees, and I'll pray for you. Well, then, and this thing is videoed, so he's got a thing on it. So this is on YouTube as well. And so a bunch of people stepped out. I mean, a bunch of people. I would say 80% of the crowd, which I don't know, 150-ish people there, stepped out into the aisle and down front, which surprised him, really surprised him. But he prayed for those people. And he says in the thing that then he asked, now anybody that would like to receive the Holy Spirit, if you will lift up your hands, then I'll pray for you. Well, virtually all the people lifted up their hands. And he prayed for the people that were just in front. And then it was like dominoes falling down all the way down the aisle. Everyone in the whole place that had lifted their hands was slain in the Spirit at one moment. In maximum security prison, people that are condemned for life. All slain in the Spirit. And he was just overwhelmed. But he turned around remembering he only had 40 minutes. And he said, i got to get back up here and close the service out because I'm running out of time. Is that majoring on the minor? Or you, you can just see it. It's like God doesn't know how to do time. But the Holy Spirit, you know the Holy Spirit has a sense of humor. He, the Holy Spirit is so cool. So the Holy Spirit, so he's turning around to walk back up to close the service. And so he's coming back up to close the service. But he turns around and the Holy Spirit slays him to the floor. But not to the floor but on top of the criminals who were slain on the floor. So he's laying on top of men, and you can see it. He's just laying on the top of them. And he can't stand because the Holy Spirit has taken everything out from him. You know how it is when you're slain in the Spirit. There's no options. You're out. You can't just go, I think I'll stand up. You can't stand up. You don't have that option for a while. And so he was laying on top of them. And I just love that the Holy Spirit did this. But then he said the Holy Spirit came to him in just about 10 seconds and just like whispered in his ear. It was that clear, he said, and said, you are no different than them. Do you hear that? That is not the way the world thinks. But in God's eyes, we have all sinned. We are all in desperate need of a rescuer. And Jesus came to save every one of us. And he loves the hardened criminal that's in for life as much as he loves the person who never killed anybody. And God loves all of them. And we all need his rescue every bit as much. So I'm trying to make this tremendous distinction on what Jesus did and what is the spirit of Jesus versus what is the spirit of the world. The spirit of the world from Satan wants to get you to be guilty and then condemn you. Jesus knows that you're guilty and rescues you, does not condemn you. Now, if the church was just to adopt that characteristic of Jesus, just to allow the Holy Spirit to change us from searching for guilt and then readily condemning to recognizing, look, we're all guilty. We don't need to search for guilt. That's okay. We don't need to search. But we are going to be rescuers of everybody else, not condemners of people who, quote, deserve condemnation. If we would be rescuers like Jesus rather than condemners, 
the light of the church would be so bright, other people would just come and say, I just want to be with you. I don't even know what you got going, but you have got it going, and I want a piece of it. If we just did that one thing where we did not condemn. And you know, when you think about that, you go, well, my goodness, this is just love. That just means loving people. Yes, that's what love means. That's what love means, is that you're not interested in condemning. You just, when you're raising children, it's so important to raise children because you learn what love means. And children can make all sorts of stupid mistakes, even bad mistakes, even blatantly disobey you, but you still love them. You don't like what they did, but you still love them. And God loves us. The Bible says if your parents know how to give you good gifts, being evil as they are, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? He is so much more loving than we are, but He gives us that love to share to the world. He makes us conduits of Jesus so that they can see that. That is not the common thing. Jesus came not to condemn, but to rescue. Now, when we were talking about this in the Scripture, let me see, I put my Bible down, here we go. In the Scripture, there's a very good Scripture verse, Colossians 3.11. In Colossians 3.11, Paul is writing and he's saying about the new creation, and he says, in this new creation, there, is no, there can be neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, nor slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Okay? So when we talked about, you know, the way that we tend to move towards condemnation is we, we have kind of, I, I don't want to make this too difficult, but we have that category condemnation, you're in that category, you're condemned, and then we have kind of individual condemnation. You know, I watched you, you got drunk last night, and you say you're a Christian and you got drunk, you're a terrible person. Individual condemnation. Now, we'll, we'll quickly morph individual into a group. <coughs> so if you got drunk last night, we'll go... <coughs> Margie got drunk last night. Well, she's a drunkard. We have a category for drunkards. Now, Margie is in the drunkard category. Margie doesn't drink. I'm just pulling her out. But <clears throat> she's in the drunkard category. Well, what do you know about, um, you know, what do you know about Margie? Oh, she's a drunkard. And we know about drunkards. Drunkards are to be condemned. Whatever it is, they did bad stuff. They don't take control of themselves. Da-da-da. We have our drunkard condemnation. Do you see? So you can have an individual problem, and the spirit of the world will say, yeah, condemn them for their individual problem, but quickly morph them into another area where you can continually condemn them. Their nature is a drunkard, so we'll just say bad things about them. So you say, well, Margie's not a drunkard, that's a bad thing. Okay, what about a gossip? Margie most definitely is a gossip, right? She's not a gossip, okay. But gossips, do you know what the scripture says about speaking ill of somebody else? You know, it, it, I, I have, again, I shared this before. The Lord had to bang me over the head multiple times because I would go home to Helen and tell her things like, you won't believe what happened. And then I'll explain these things that are terribly accusatory of some other person, like they were just inept and dumb and dumped everything 
abrogated their responsibility, then that sounds like a big word, doesn't it? Abrogated, they just dropped their responsibility, and then all of a sudden you had to do a whole bunch more work. And then at the end of it, I would say, so we need to be praying for them. And God jumped on me and he said, there's one part of what you said that I liked. We need to be praying for them. That part I liked. The rest of it, get rid of it. Don't do it. Get rid of it. Don't tell about how all these bad things happen in these people's lives, and boy, they really need our prayers. And certainly don't start off and say, we really need to be praying for Mary Sue because she is so messed up, she's decided she can do this, and she's sleeping with these other men, and she's doing... And so we really need to be... You don't need to hear about how many men Mary Sue is sleeping with. That does not guide your prayer God is not enabled because you can tell him how many men Mary Sue is sleeping with. The reason we say things like that is the pride of life. Because we're saying, I don't sleep with a bunch of men, but look at Mary Sue. Do you see? So God is saying, take all of those conversations and drop them. And just say, Mary Sue has some needs we need to be praying for her. That's it. That is the heart of Jesus. You see, the rest is all of Satan. It's all of this world. It's all to condemn. And yet it is the standard in conversation. If Christians could talk about other people in positive ways that build them up, they would so stand out from the rest of the world, they would be such lights. And this happens in everything. You'll get somebody up and say, I don't know. I mean, I, I listened to John Smith preach this week, and he was talking about something, and I think he botched the interpretation of the Greek word so-and-so in the fourth chapter of this. It doesn't really match the Greek word this in the third chapter of this. Is that what you're focusing on? The guy could have made a complete mistake on a Greek word, but can't we just get underneath him and say, Lord, help that person get all of his sermons right, share your word the way you want it, and go on. And not say, you know, he made this mistake, calls himself a Greek scholar. Can he really be a Greek scholar if he can't figure out the word here versus the word there? Seems doubtful to me. What is all that about? That is putting this person down to put me up. It is the pride of life disguised. Do you see it? And so if Christians can just let that go and just put a clamp, God literally, in me, The Holy Spirit, I'm embarrassed to say this, but some of the clearest words I have from the Holy Spirit are when I'm making mistakes. I go, oh my gosh, that was so clear from God, that was bad to do. But you know, it says in Isaiah, it says that when you're walking, that there'll come a voice behind you if you stray to the left or you stray to the right. He doesn't promise the voice behind you if you're headed in the right direction. It's in the middle of Isaiah, like 26, somewhere in there. A voice will come behind you if you stray to the left or the right, saying, this is the way, walking in it. And I think everybody in this room knows the Holy Spirit. You're beginning to head to a place, and he goes, you're about to put this person really down. Don't say it. And I have found myself saying, yes, but this is juicy. (laughs) This is really something no one else knows. And I can tell you some things nobody else knows. And they are juicy. And it's wrong for me to talk about them. 
I don't want any of you ever sequestering Helen on a retreat saying, tell us all the things about Jim no one knows. Helen could slice me to bits. Because we've grown together for whatever, 45, almost 46 years. But the purpose is not to slice people to bits. The purpose is to be like Jesus. The purpose is to build people up. So this verse is saying, listen, don't put people in groups. The Jews wanted to say, even when they became Christians, they're the circumcised Christians and the uncircumcised Christians. Can you imagine? But he's saying here, listen, now there is neither Greek nor Jew. There is neither. He says there is neither circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian. There is neither slave nor free. But Christ is what? He says two things about Christ. But Christ is all and in all. So in a strange sense, you go, well, when we talk about Jesus being my Lord and King, you're saying that Jesus is all. That all of my life centers in Him. That He's the source of life. That he is all, he is the preeminent one. Yes, that's exactly what it's saying. And you say, well, I don't see him that big. That's, that's important that we see him bigger then, because he is that big. And you'll have these verses in Scripture that say, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And we go, oh yeah, I've read that Scripture before. But we don't listen to the Scripture, we just read the Scripture. The scripture says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And this is in Colossians, and he goes on to say, and he holds all things together. Do you see how Jesus can't ever be on the sideline, but always has to be the one up front? And he does that to us every day in our life. What happens to you tomorrow, Jesus will be involved before 10 o'clock. And he'll be showing you something, and he's saying, I want you to pray about this. I want you to engage this way. I want you to get rid of this sin in your life. I want you to do something. He'll be engaged with you before 10 o'clock. He'll be working with you. He'll be working with you. And then between 10 and 12, he'll be on to something else. And he never leaves, and he never has other fees may apply to this text rate. He never turns you off. He never hangs up. He doesn't need a Wi-Fi connection. He is better than 5G over your house. He always wants to talk, and he never gets tired of hearing your voice. This is incredible. For from him and through him and to him are all things, are all things. And he holds everything together. So one thing I want to say to Don and Deborah and Chibs is early in life, you have this feeling that you can hold all things together. The older and older you get, tremendously helped by having a baby, you recognize you hold very little together. And the older, older you get, you recognize you hold almost nothing together. If he wasn't holding it together, it wouldn't be held together. And I think this is true not only in events in our life and sanity itself, but it's true in the physical realm as well. We can't explain physically why all these things are held together. Well, he holds these things together. He's this great. I mean, you, you listen to this and you go, well, why don't we just talk about Jesus all day, every day? And when we talk to people, why aren't we talking about Jesus? We should be. That's where we should be. We have a Savior who's so wonderful. 
I'm always bothered by people who have to be instructed in detail about how to witness. Your witness is your testimony, and it can be as short as, I met Jesus, he changed everything in my life, took hopelessness to hope, forgave my sin, made me into a new person, and I would like to introduce you to him. That was 16 seconds. But the gospel is the Christ. Do you see? There is not a gospel here and Jesus here. Jesus is the good news of the kingdom of God. He is the good news. He doesn't write the good news on a piece of paper. He is the good news as sure as he is the way, the truth, the life, the bread who came down from heaven, the living Son of God, who was made unto us righteousness, who was made unto us redemption and consecration. Jesus was made unto us those things. He did not transcribe those things. He was made unto those things. And the last part of that verse, actually the first part of that verse in 1 Corinthians 1.30, says he was made unto us wisdom. He is wisdom. So this revelation of Jesus is much, much bigger. And I'll, uh, another thing I'm amused is when I sit back and look at myself and say, well, how long have you been a Christian? I don't like to tell you how long I've been a Christian because I think I should be a whole lot further along than I am. Do you know? And the enemy has actually used that. And you'll hear the enemy do that to you. Well, you've known the Lord 20 plus years. You can't tell people that sin still tempts you. You're a 20 plus years. You're a medallion member of the Christian faith. How can you be tempted anymore? Do you see? And he'll say, don't you share your weaknesses. You're going to be a negative testimony to Jesus if you can still be tempted when you're 20 years in. You're to be beyond that. No, hold it in and be ashamed. That's the voice of the enemy. You know, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, but then after the wilderness, he acquired the disciples. And right before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane in John, he was describing to the disciples what was going to happen. And he said to the disciples, For you have been with me in all of my trials. Well, the disciples were not with him when he was tempted in the wilderness. They didn't come till after the wilderness. And that means that Jesus had a series of trials all through his life up until Gethsemane, which was a huge trial. So Jesus went, underwent trials all the time after the wilderness. I used to think, oh, he got rid of Satan in the wilderness. And after that, he was kind of cruising. He's not cruising. He went through trials. If Jesus went through trials, we go through trials. We'll have this talk right now, and before a day elapses, someone's going to come up to you condemning another person, and you're going to feel the temptation to jump in. Yeah, Mary Sue should not be sleeping with other men. Don't know what happened to Mary Sue. She was raised in a Christian home. I know this is breaking her mother's heart. Mary Sue is hurting her mother. And you'll just hear that, and you'll just go in, and God is saying, forget that, you're as guilty as Mary Sue. Now, when I hear I'm as guilty as Mary Sue, you're touching home there. I don't run around sleeping on my wife. She's running around. Do you see? But God says we are all sinners, all in desperate need. And we start parsing out sin. We're in tough ground. So he says, listen, Christ is all. And Christ is in all. In the scripture, he says, don't you know that the spirit of Christ dwells in you? Paul says that I am working so much that Jesus be fully formed in you. Don't you know Jesus is in you? 
And you say, well, I don't understand how that works. It hasn't got anything to do with understanding how it works. It just has to do with you understanding that it is clear in the Scripture that Jesus is in you. Well, sometimes I would think, if Jesus is in me, I'm embarrassed about some of the things he's seeing. Yes, you should be embarrassed. But he sees them. He sees them. You know, the enemy is always coming around with this voice that says, you can do this and no one will know. That's what he said to Robert with his $50,000 check until the IRS showed up. You can do this and no one will know. And you people say, well, I've never heard of these things. He's talking, the Holy Spirit speaks to you and Satan speaks to you. Have you ever heard that voice? You can do this and no one will know. That's as Satan as 100% clear as it can be. And you hear that voice. You heard Satan. You hear what, you, what we want is a pre-announcement. We want a bell to ring and go ding, 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 ding. This is Satan. The, uh, you know, this is from Satan to Jim. The time is this. The text recording is this. We, that's what we want. No, he just brings in a thought. You can do this and no one will know. You can do this. It will make you look good. You can do this. It will make you impress other people. And, and when Jesus was speaking in John 5, he said, How can you believe when you receive glory from man, but do not seek the glory that comes from the one and only God? You see, we have got to be seeking the one and only God. And when we seek Him, Christ is all. But beyond Christ is all, it turns out Christ is in all. And Christ is in every one of us. If any man be in Christ, and Christ comes into him, he is a new creation. Christ is there. And that's what changes. Then in Galatians 3, Paul is saying to them, and he says, How is it? that you started with the Spirit of God, and now you think you're going to be perfected by your own works. How is it that the Spirit of God is the only one that could kick you off, and now you've left the Spirit of God, and you're saying, how am I going to make this happen? We could never make any of it happen. It's all because of the grace He gave in Himself, and he's the one, it says in Philippians 1.6, who began the good work. And it says in Philippians 1.6 that he who began the good work will complete it. Jesus began it, and Jesus completes it. It says that all growth comes from God. We, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but the growth came from God. Jesus told the parable, said a man went to, um, planted, a, uh, I can't remember if it was a vineyard, but he planted his thing and and he said, at first it came forth, and he says that all the man went to sleep, and it says that the growth came. He knew not how. And we don't know how. God is doing things in ways we don't know how. I am very glad I don't know how, because my toolkit, hope, is very small. And God wouldn't get much done if he just knew the tools that I had. Now, I'm very glad to be married to Helen, but Helen has been a flintstone to me throughout our life. Helen doesn't put up with anything that is um, fake. She can just sort shadow from substance, just zoop, just like that. Do you know what I mean? I think you all do know what I mean. And those of you who know Helen for sure know what I mean. You know, but, but that's good for me because I can't just say, it's moving along at an acceptable pace. Eventually, we'll get there. Helen will go, I want more details on that. What are you doing now different than you were doing three months ago? 
uh, nothing. <laughs> I'm just doing the same thing, hoping something will come out. Oh, that's what you meant. Well, that didn't sound like that first phrase, did it? But she just cuts through to the center of it. In the scripture, it says that everything other than Christ is a shadow, but that Jesus is the substance. Everything other than Jesus is a shadow, but he's the substance. So he's trying to put that same heart in us, Bob, that is, I want you to look at people and say, Christ is all, and Christ is in you, and I love you, and you are redeemed because of him, and I'm not interested in condemning you. I can recognize sin, but not condemn you. And Jesus did with the woman who was caught in adultery recognize the sin because he said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. So we have several talks, I'm not going to give it again, but we have several talks that are on YouTube, not YouTube, but are on um, yeah, Sound, Sound, uh, SoundCloud. Yeah. And, and we talk about the importance of hating sin. In Hebrews it says that Jesus was given the oil of gladness above his brethren because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Jesus both loved God's way and hated wickedness. God calls us to hate wickedness at the same time that we're to hate wickedness in ourselves and hate wickedness in other people. We are to love and rescue other people rather than condemn them for the wickedness that is in them. That is what Jesus did. That is what we are called to do. But more important, Chibs, we are empowered to do it by the Holy Spirit. Because you see, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us, the first fruit of the Spirit, is love. Love is not some Christian virtue to be aspired to by taking six love courses. Love is the fruit of God within us. And that love seeks to rescue, not condemn. To rescue, not condemn. So I just want to close with this thought. I, I just want to note that I got one-third of the way through my scripture verses today. So, um, however, that's not the important thing. But I want it to be something very live in our lives, that the world is moving gangbusters into guilt and condemnation. And they do it rampantly, and you hate when you're around it. And Jesus moved completely the other direction to say, I came to rescue the guilty, to take the bird from the fowler's snare. The one I like in the scripture is out of the miry clay. I don't know if y'all played in clay a lot. I, I got the scripture verse right here. But he said in Psalms 42, He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. Miry clay is sticky and gooey and you get stuck in it. And if you can just imagine yourself chest high in miry clay, you can't get out. And the scripture says he picked me up out of the miry clay, out of the pit of destruction. A pit of destruction is when you're in a place and everything is falling apart. I know, especially if you've raised kids, you go through times and you go, it's all falling apart. It's not working. On seven fronts, it's not working. Things are falling apart. The Bible says that Jesus picks us up out of the pit of destruction. Out of the pit of destruction. 
Sometimes we have children and we say, I, I, don't, I may have made a lot of mistakes. I tried to do as best I could. But this child is not walking anywhere near the Lord. And you have a hopelessness that the enemy brings into your heart. And the enemy brings hopelessness into your heart. And says, that's 30 years you worked with that child. If they haven't had a voice and responded to the Lord by now, you just pretty much better just give up and move on to a more profitable enterprise. That's the enemy. God never gives up. God is never hopeless. God is never hopeless. He's always full of hope. And the child that hasn't responded to God, you know, Billy Graham's oldest son, Franklin Graham, he was not always a Christian. Franklin Graham went a long time. I don't know how long it was, but it was long without ever knowing the Lord. I, I, my impression, it was late 30s before he gave his life to the Lord. How could you be the son of Billy Graham and not follow the Lord? I don't know, but it can happen. And it happened there. Well, what do you think Billy Graham was praying about for whatever, 38 years? Lord, touch my son. Okay? But now when Franklin Graham shares about being deceived and about walking after the ways of the world and about the emptiness of this walk, he speaks from a place where he came. Now, a lot of times we don't want ever to go places, but God rescues us from places so we can testify and say, He is able. If He can mess with my mind and straighten it out, He can mess with your mind and straighten it out. If you think panic attacks are beyond my control and I'm completely helpless, I'm here to tell you that God is never helpless and He's always with you. And in the midst of that, God is still there and He'll be there. But once you catch that Jesus is alive in me and wants to be with me and loves me and wants to rescue me from my guilt and for me to be a rescuer, to rescue other people from their guilt and to bring them to Jesus... It, it transforms the way you look at human interaction. It definitely transforms the way you look at TV. Have you ever heard anyone say, I listened to the TV and began to pray for the announcers? And I began to pray for the group who was discussing this topic, one by one. I started with the man on the right, then I went to the next woman, and I just prayed for each one of them. No, almost, well, maybe, but I've never heard that. People listen to it and they just say, I don't like them. I don't like what they're doing. Or I do like them. <clears throat> I don't like what they're talking about. But we're always judging and condemning. And Jesus is always saying, get underneath and pray for them. Another verse I want to get before we close is Luke 18, 1. Because this is a verse that means a lot to me. I hate to say how many times I've used it in my life. But the scripture says, And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that men should never lose heart, but should always pray. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that men should never lose heart, but always pray. If you've had a situation in your life where you begin to lose heart, that means get discouraged. The Bible says you should never lose heart, but always pray. And the great thing about the Christian life is you don't know what God's got coming up for you tomorrow. You don't know. He's in charge of the schedule. I, I don't do this often with Helen, but it's a wonderful thing when Helen goes, I'm just going to fix something special. Just leave it to me. Let me see what we're going to have for dinner tonight. 
Well, I like that. That's an enjoyable thing. And Helen has a very good repertoire, but it's a wonderful thing to say that to Jesus. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but you do, and you're going to be with me. And in 1 Corinthians, he says, Therefore, since we do engage in this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not get discouraged. Therefore, since we engage in this ministry, which we're all engaged in our ministry, since we engage in this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not get discouraged. Now, this is the same guy who was beaten five times with 39 lashes. I'm, I'm engaged in this ministry by the mercy of God. I don't get discouraged. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want to talk to Paul in heaven after about the first 10,000 years. You know, I, I just want a small conversation on the side because he has helped me so much. I especially like the part where he says, I'm caught between leaving you and staying here. And he says, I'm caught betwixt the two, whether to stay here, which is certainly better for your good, or to go, which is certainly more attractive and be with Christ. Now, I, I mean, I'll just tell you, friend, if I get that option this afternoon, there's some serious questions as to whether I'm hanging around. If God comes to me and says, well, you got the option, same option I gave Paul, you can go or you can stay. Now, I'd probably stay because Helen would be really upset with me if I just bolted in the midst of all this. So I'd probably stay. But, but what a great option. What a great thing to be option. But then Paul had seen such glory. He said, I know a man who's been to the third heaven, which is heaven as we call it. And he was the man. And he said he saw things that can't be spoken of in our words. Well, what can you see that can't be described in our words? I don't know, but I do know this. They can't be described in our words. It's that good. You know, I, I, I think often in the Scripture, because the Scripture is very clear, that when we see Him, we're going to receive a body like His body. And that's what the Scripture says. Well, when Jesus was redeemed, when Jesus came back, He had an interesting body. He had a body, first, that could go through walls, because it says in the Bible that all the disciples were gathered together and the doors were shut. And then the next verse says, and Jesus appeared in the midst of them. Well, if Jesus appeared in the midst of them, he had to come through the shut doors. So he had a body that could go through doors. And then he also disappeared from the midst of them. That was, I don't know, exciting. But then when he met him at the Sea of Galilee, it says he ate fish. So my question is, when he goes through the wall, what happens to the fish? Do you see? You can see it'd be trouble to work for me. Can you see that? Okay. So how, how can we have an eternal body that can partake of the material? Oh, it can. Yes, but it can go through walls. Oh, yes, it can. And a lot more. I'm confident we're going to be able to be at more than one place at the same time. If there is such a thing as time. Remember, God created time. Time didn't used to exist. That's a hard saying to that sentence. Don't diagram that sentence. But there was a time when there was no time. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, time. In the beginning, God. And God created time and space. He created the heavens and the universe. So heaven may have a different kind of time. I might be able to talk with Deborah and at the same time, be over here and talking to Sasha. I don't think it's that goofed up, but God, God's got, we're not limited the way we are here. 
you know, it, it's going to be a special thing. So what is that to say? That's to say we want to stay in touch with the God who's the God of things we can't even touch or explain or understand. I do want to make one recommendation for you. There's a, there's a channel on YouTube. I talk a lot about YouTube. If you all noticed this, but I found some really cool things on YouTube. There's a channel called the Yosemite Channel, like Yosemite National Park. And in the Yosemite Channel, there are some time-lapse movies of the Milky Way. And they're done in Yosemite Park. And one of the problems that we have in our culture today is that we do not behold the heavens because we sit in the cities, and when we look up to behold the heavens, we see eight, nine, ten stars. I don't know, Dick, it may be better at your house, but where I live, it's not, you can't see the stars. When Abraham looked up, he saw something much more beautiful than what I see. But if you go to these pictures in Yosemite, you see the stars. And see, this is very important because Romans 1.20 said, because the heavens declare his glory, no man has excuse. For the heavens declare two things about God, his power and his divine nature. His power and his divine nature. And when you see the Milky Way, no one has to tell you God is there and he's powerful and he's God. No one has to tell you that gets communicated from you seeing that. But we don't see it. We don't see it in the city. But if you, if you, I'm telling you, the Yosemite Channel, Milky Way Journey, those are the key words. And you look at that, and just seeing it on YouTube is enough to be awe-inspiring. But God said, because you see that, you know I'm there, and I put all that there to draw you to me. You can't go... If 20 of us really get together and apply all our resources and push hard, we're going to birth a planet. We're not going to birth a planet. We're not going to birth a moon. We're not going to birth a boulder. We can't birth anything. And God spoke and created 200 billion galaxies. Now, I use this example several times because I want Chibs to remember it, but <clears throat> if I got hope on a rocket ship, traveling at a uh, speed of light, and put her on the edge of the Milky Way. Now, the speed of light is fast, 186,000 miles per second. Well, the Earth is 25,000 miles around, roughly. So that would mean, in a, if you said 1,001, that light would go around the Earth more than seven times. 1,001. 1,001. Around the Earth more than seven times. That's fast. 186,000 miles per second, not miles per hour, per second. So if I got hope in a really good spaceship that we made and put her on the edge of the Milky Way, and I said, Hope, take off and drive across, fly across the Milky Way. And I came back a little bit later to check on to see how she was doing. It would take hope going at the speed of light, 106 thousand years to cross the Milky Way. 106,000 years going at the speed of light. The Milky Way is one galaxy of 200 billion galaxies. And it's very healthy for our minds to go into overload and completely go tilt, tilt, tilt. I can't understand that. 
It's huge, big, gigantic, enormous, gigantic again, more enormous. I can't hold it. That's exactly what we need to do because God created that by saying, let there be, and there was. That's God. And the scripture goes on in Psalms to say that God stoops down to behold the heavens. He stoops to behold the heavens. We have God this big, about as big as a baseball. God is gigantic. He is unfathomably powerful, knowledgeable, wise, and loving at the same time. And we shrink him down all the time. Remember what Satan said? The first temptation was, if you will eat this, you will be as God. So the first thing that Satan did is said, you can go from where you are, Don, and attain God status. There's no way. It was a flat lie. Jesus said he was a liar from the beginning. He lied then. There's, we're not anywhere near God, nor would we ever be. And in all that time, hope has only gone a few inches. You see, we're, we're, we're just nothing compared to this. And we need to have our minds flushed out because we talk to each other, seek the glory from one another, and we go, well, here's John, and John's doing very well up there. It's very good to talk to John. I'm learning from John. John's learning from me. We're both really benefiting from this relationship. And I now know three scriptures I hadn't thought about, and I've shared two with John. We're moving right along. John and I are happening. Do you see? Well, what's going on in your life? John and I are working together. We're moving forward. We got things going, people to do, places to see, you know, people to see, places, wherever it is. We're going people, places, and doing things. We got action in our life, you know? And we say, yeah, look at this. Well, yes, you do have a little action in your life. But if you compare yourself to one to another, you're going to say, I think I'm better than this. When I was in medical school, so this is for uh, Deborah and Don, I was in medical school. There are a lot of smart people in medical school. And one of the things that threw me was um, you'd look around and you couldn't say, well, I know I'm smarter than this person. And so if they can do it, I can do it. And when you're concerned about whether you can make it through the whole thing, you have thoughts like that. And when I first started medical school, everybody was smart. And you'd go around and go, oh, these people are smart. I'm not clear I'm smarter than any of these people. But I ran into this one guy, and he was a math teacher at Georgia Tech and had decided to go to medical school. I don't know if he had all the things or not, but I was watching him, and I go, wait a second. I'm definitely smarter than this guy. I, I had 103 other people in my class. I wasn't sure about that, but I got one guy here. He's coming every day. I'm smarter than this guy. I'm watching his face. I can tell I'm smarter than this guy. And I took some solace in that. You know, if he can do it, then I can do it. There's a lot of times in life you say that. It's like riding a bicycle. If you went through the theory on riding the bicycle, you would never get on the bicycle. If you, know, if you had to have the gyroscopic vectors explained to you for why a bike balances, you would panic. But when you see the five-year-old neighbor jump on the bike and take off, you go, I got to do it. He's doing it. Do you see? Okay, so we, that's the way we operate a lot of the time. So I looked at this guy, and I said, it's okay. I can make it through the first year because this guy is still here. We went all the way through the fall semester. I would say eight, nine, ten times I would look at him and take comfort. So we went out on the winter break. He didn't come back. He dropped out. 
And all of a sudden, my little comfort zone got vanished, you know. Well, we do that with people. We compare ourselves one to another. That's how we do things. And God is saying, I want to completely transform your mind. And I only want you to be thinking about pleasing me. And all that other will take care of itself. But seek first my kingdom. And all those things are going to be taken care of. Don't, don't do that. But come up here with me. And your vision of me and we're anywhere near where it should be. Once you get close to me, I'm richer, better, higher, more wonderful. That's why we won't get bored in heaven. I had real conceptual problems with heaven because after about 100,000 years, I couldn't think what we would do. Do you know? I, I, I was like, okay, we can have some great tennis tournaments. We can and really enjoy things. But after 100,000 years, what are we going to do? Well, that's because I have my concept of heaven was all wrong. What makes heaven heaven is that we know the Father and the Son. The revelation of the fullness of God. We are not at the first inkling on the revelation of God. We are not even at the first inkling. It's like God's got a monsoon and he sent down one drop. And that's what we understand. He, he is unendingly wonderful. Well, I can't perceive that. It's okay. Can't perceive heaven. That's okay. He's going to take care of that. So Jesus is saying, I want you to be the way I am. And a big emphasis I want to put on today is the world is so much classifying people as guilty and condemning. Jesus wants to make a big change in the world because we recognize that we and others are guilty, but we don't condemn. We're rescuers, even as Jesus is always a rescuer. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, you alone are the reason that we exist, that we have life, that we have a desire in our heart to look after you. Jesus, we just cry out to you for help. Help us, Lord, put aside those things which have held us back like grappling hooks that have weighed us down, that have restricted us. All the times we have restricted ourselves because we would say, how can this possibly happen when, Lord, the how is up to you? I ask that you take condemning spirits that are in our lives and get rid of them. I ask that you take judgmental attitudes that are in our lives and get rid of them. I ask that you let us look into your face and see the love that you have for us and every other person and receive it and distribute it, Lord, to everyone we meet. Only you can do these things, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.